All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For those of you that are listening online, thank you very much. For those of you that are listening online, my voice is this way because of cold and because of a, a wonderful worship experience yesterday with 288 pastors. <laughs> and I sang real loud, but I always do that anyway. I'm going to read to you this whole section, and then we're going to be breaking it down, but I'll give you a little heads up. We're going to break it down by jumping around in it. Instead of going verse by verse through it, we're going to actually jump around, because there are some thoughts that are going to kind of flow, and then we'll jump around to follow those thoughts. Starting in chapter 2, verse 10, uh, the Hebrew writer goes on to say, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, and here am I, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now there's a lot that we're going to be looking at in these verses tonight. But before we get started, we've got we to gotta keep in mind where we left off last week. If you remember last week, the Hebrew writer had just told us that Jesus suffered death, and in doing so, he experienced death for everyone. Remember the word tasted is not a good translation. Tasted gives us, in our understanding, the picture of uh, sampling of it. He didn't sample death. He experienced death for us. And we saw last week that his death has now become our death through our faith in him. But what I want to talk about today is I'm going to kind of walk you through a little bit of a theological uh, uh, process here. Uh, This death that he experienced has made him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. In other words, man sinned, not God. Keep that in mind. Man is the one who sinned. Therefore, man had to be punished for man's sins. Animals being punished for man's sins didn't take care of man's sin problem, did it? It covered it for a time. God would allow it to be satisfactory, but only for a time. Uh, Even on the Day of Atonement, when the blood was offered to cover their sins, if they sinned immediately after that, guess what? They weren't covered anymore. And so man had to pay for man's sins. Animal sacrifices did not cover man's sins. So God then became man in order to be the sacrifice for man's sins. See, if the sacrifice of the lamb could cover the sins of man for a time, how much more will the sacrifice of the sinless God-man totally remove our sins forever? But now whoever the sacrificial man may be, he must be a satisfactory sacrifice or a payment, if you will, in the eyes of the one who was offended. In other words, the one who was offended, God, has to decide that that sacrifice is satisfactory. In other words, we could say, well, I'll tell you what, um, how about I do this to make it up to it? And God says, no, that won't do it. God has to determine that the one who does this is satisfactory. Now, God knows that the sacrifice had to be a sinless, spotless sacrifice. had to be a human who had never sinned. That's impossible. But God knew this, 
And that's one of the neat things of this. He knew there was only one way that all the necessary conditions could be met. And that was for Him to meet them Himself. And He did this through Jesus Christ because of His great love for us. But actually, I'm going to show you some Scriptures, He had planned to do this for us before there even was an earth. And I want you to see that. God had planned for Jesus to be this sacrifice before there was even an earth. Don't think for a second that God had to come up with plan B. Jesus was plan A from the beginning. So go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Alright? Now let me show you one more place. Go to Revelation 13. I love the fact there in Timothy, though, it says that he did it not because of anything we've done. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with who he is. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. It's talking about the Antichrist and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast and all whose names have not been written in the book of life beginning belonging to the Lamb. Look how he's described, though. That was slain from the creation of the world. God's plan for Jesus Christ has been in, in, in before He even created the world. But I want to ask you a simple question. Going back now to Hebrews chapter 2, it says that <clears throat> the author of our salvation was made perfect or complete through suffering. Well, we've got to deal with a tough question now. Is Jesus, was He not complete? Yes. He was. Yes, He's God. Was He not perfect? Yes. Then what is the Hebrew writer saying here? What's he saying then that that Jesus was made perfect or complete through suffering? Completed his task? Um, You could go there, but I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Keep going. What are some other ideas? His flesh was made complete. If I think what you're saying is is what you're saying, I'm going to say yes, but I'm not sure you're really saying it clear enough. Cindy? He was tempted and he didn't sin. We're going to get to that aspect in a little bit. That is true. It goes to what I just said in my little set of stages there. Go ahead. Oh, well, I'm just thinking that actually he came as glorified God. Uh-huh. That's part of that glorification He definitely came as... Go ahead. But he was only made complete once he died. Well, you got to think about the fact of the sacrifice part of it. Think about the fact that he was the perfect sacrifice. Sacrifice was complete. The sacrifice definitely was complete. But think about the fact that He became the perfect sacrifice. Remember what we just said. There was only one kind of sacrifice that could be made. It had to be man, and it had to be a perfect man. And He had to be tempted. tempted. That's important. You're going to see that in a little bit. He accepted. He has always been perfect. He's always been complete. But in his becoming man, he became the complete 
perfect sacrifice for man. This is not at all saying that He never was complete or never perfect. But in doing what He did, He became the perfect, or listen, the only sacrifice for sin. And He became the perfect sacrifice. Now, as you're going to see in a little bit, there's a whole lot more to that. Alright? Uh, Jesus' death was on our, beh- on our behalf. Not only was necessary in order to make atonement for our sins. And by the way, this will help you. If whenever you see the word atonement, just put it in this way. Turning aside God's wrath. Alright? Turn atonement into turning aside God's wrath. God's wrath was turned away through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Alright? Jesus' death on our behalf not only was necessary in order to make atonement for our sins, man dying or paying for man's sin, but it also qualified him to be the perfect high priest on our behalf. And that's what the Hebrew writer is getting into now. He starts moving from the fact that he died for us, our sins, and he was the perfect sacrifice in that manner, but it's also there's more to it. That's what I want you to see tonight as we take a look at this. Not only was he the perfect sacrifice for our sins, because he's the only one that could be, He also, by going through what He went through, He now becomes the perfect high priest for us because now we have a high priest who really understands every aspect of what it is that we're going through. And I really want that to sink in today. And only God's going to be able to help you get there. But I want you to really let this sink in that this God that we trust in, this God that we have a relationship, this God that has saved us from our sins, truly does understand what it feels like and what it is like to be a human. It's not that He's a God who created us and has some idea of what it must be like. I'll be honest with you. I have been used by God in the way He's designed creation of children to be a, to be a dad to my daughters. I really don't know what it's like to be a young girl. And boy, that opens up to some jokes, but I'm going to leave it alone. <clears throat> But as much as I try to empathize, as much as I try to understand, as much as I try to be there for them, I don't know what it's like to grow up as a young girl. But God knows what it's like to be us. He didn't just make us. He has become like us. In every way, the Bible says, except one. Anybody know what that one is? Except without sin. Alright, so let's take a look at this. Go to chapter 4 and look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way That's hard to let that sink in. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. He understands. And that's why, back here in chapter 2, look at verse 17, he's described as... Well, let me read it. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. How does the word merciful jump out at you there? We don't deserve any of what we get. We definitely don't deserve what we get, that's for sure. It's his mercy alone. Do you think his mercy is tied into also the fact that he's been where we are? 
I think there are times that he's merciful because of the fact that he under... That's who he is. It's a big part of his nature. But also for the fact that he knows how tough it is. You know, for those of you that have maybe fallen or sinned in a certain area, it's probably easier, hopefully, for you to be merciful towards someone else that has fallen in that same area. You know, the good news is Jesus hasn't, but He's been there. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's... That's why He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He knows what this struggle of life is like. And, and I've thought about this for a, a while. Have you ever thought about the fact that there probably isn't a whole lot of anything you can think of that you go through in this life that Jesus hasn't experienced when He was on the earth, even for that short period of time? Homelessness. Living off of other people's uh, donations. Rejected by His family. Considered that He was crazy or out of His mind. Turned on by His friends. We could just keep going. All the things we struggle with. Attacked by the religious folk. Beaten. Put to death. Mocked. Humiliated. Went through an unfair trial. Folks, I'm, I'm serious. Sit down sometime, and as you think of what you're going through, try and see if that's not something Jesus hasn't gone through. I've yet to find anything that He hasn't experienced. There's a chance He lost one of His parents to death. It kind of looks like something happened to Joseph. For him to stay in the home for as long as he did as the oldest child, the oldest boy, chances are Joseph died early. And for Mary to have been attended by other women, not by Exactly. Most likely he had a father die. Somebody say, well, I had to help raise my family. Guess what? I think Jesus did. I think you'll be hard-pressed to find something Jesus didn't experience in the time that He was on this earth. He's not ashamed to call us His brothers. We don't have a God who can't, can't sympathize. We have a God who understands. We have a God who understands. But I want you to see something here, though. I want to take some time to take a look at this. Look at what it says in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood... He too shared in their humanity, so that by His death He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Look closely at this. Jesus didn't... Well, let me just back up. When Satan convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God, and Satan, at that time there in the garden, Satan won in that battle against God. And now the same fate which befell him fell upon all mankind, which is death. Separation. Whenever you see the word death, it means a separation. A physical death is a separation of your spirit from your body. Alright? A, a spiritual death is a separation of your spirit from God's spirit. Death means separation. And when Satan sinned, if you will, and when Satan disobeyed God, when he tried to be like God and he was removed from the presence of God, he experienced death spiritually in that sense. But then when he caused Adam and Eve to sin, they experienced death. Eventually physical death, but they also experienced the, physical, the spiritual death. But when Jesus died for our sins, he not only defeated death, look closely at what he defeated. He defeated Satan himself. Do you see it? He didn't just defeat death. So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan himself was defeated. Oh, by the way, go to Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 15. You'll see that God said that that was going to happen way back in the garden, in the very first presentation of the gospel. 
The very first presentation of the Gospel anywhere in Scripture is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If anybody tries to look smart with you and say, could you tell me what the proto-evangelium is? You could say, that's Genesis 3.15. The proto-evangelium is the first gospel, the first presentation of the good news. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. But then he gets specific. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It sure looked like Satan won when Jesus was killed on the the cross and his heel was pierced, if you will. But the Bible says that when he died and he rose from the dead, he crushed Satan's head. He is defeated. He is absolutely defeated. The amazing thing about Satan, though, is even though he knows what Scripture says and he knows that he's a defeated foe, he still thinks he can win. He hasn't hit. Well, that definitely is part of his, his, his sin of pride, if you will. But he still thinks he can win. But the Bible says he's already been defeated by Jesus Christ. You know, I, I was uh, I, as a year, many years as being a pastor. You know, I've dealt with people who deal with uh, delving into spiritual realms that they shouldn't be playing with, and demonology and stuff like that. And 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 uh, I remember one guy telling me, he goes, "Oh, I got so caught up in that stuff, things start. A trash can flew across the room." And I said to him, I said, isn't that pretty funny? He said, what do you mean? It was real scary. I said, so the best Satan can do is throw trash cans? He's defeated. And he's got no power over you unless the Father gives him permission. The best he can do is throw trash cans? Now, let me tell you. That doesn't mean that we're to go and say, ah, I'm going to go run right into hell and, and you know, wave my sword. No, we, we defeat, was what he dealt with, we defeat him by submitting ourselves to God, resisting him, and he flees. But it's because of Jesus, it's not because of us. Alright? <clears throat> but now look at verse 15. We're going we're to deal with some more deep theology here. Look what it says in verse 15. And, and not only did he defeat devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of the death, for surely it is not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. I want to take some time to deal with that and all, because some of you might say, well, I'm not a descendant of Abraham, I'm not Jewish. I want to show you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, by faith you're a descendant of Abraham. But let's start in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see the first promise of God to Abraham. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Now before we go any further, I've got to point out something here that a lot of people miss. People think this is the first time God spoke to Abraham. Actually, if you compare what happens here with the sermon preached in Acts, you'll find out that actually Genesis 12 is a reminder of the promise that God had said. Look at what it says. The Lord had said to Abram. See, God had told Abram to leave his country, and that was the world of the Chaldeans, and to go to a land that he would show him. He was to go, and he was to leave, what? His family, all that. What did he do? He didn't fully obey in that, right? He didn't fully obey, and he actually brought his father with him. Brought Lot, his cousin, or you know. And so, um, what else happens? 
He then stops in Haran. And he stays in Haran for a while until his father Terah dies. After his father Terah dies, God reminds him of the fact that he had told him to leave and to come to a land that he had showed him. He was not fully obedient. How come God didn't just say, well, forget it, I'll go with somebody else? Maybe Abraham. Maybe. He'd already, he'd already made a promise. And here's the promise he made. He'd already had said to him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now there's a lot in this promise, a lot that we need to understand and I wish our political leaders understood today as to what's going on with the nation of Israel and the promises of God to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. Because it is tied to it with Abraham's descendants genetically in that sense. But there's more to it as that because he also says all people on earth will be blessed through you. So keep that in mind. There's like a dual fulfillment here. Not just in the nation of Israel but also Everybody on earth can be blessed through Abraham. Well, what does that mean? Well, Galatians chapter 3 gives us a clearer picture of that. Go to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verses 6 through 9. In Galatians 3 verses 6 through 9, Paul says this. He says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, by the way, he's quoting from Genesis 15.6. That's where Abraham at that time was questioning whether or not he was going to have this child that God had promised him. Because it's kind of hard to be a mighty nation if you don't have any descendants. And God says, a child from your own body will be your heir. It's not going to be Eliezer of Damascus. It's a child from your own body. Verse 6 of Genesis 15 says, And Abraham believed God. And God credited to him as righteousness, gave him righteousness because of his faith in God's promise that the the child would come from his own body. Alright? So consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And here's what we just read. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you have faith, that's where God gives you righteousness. But again, it has to be faith in what He's promised. And what He gives righteousness now for the church is for those who believe that Jesus is who He said He was. And, and, and God says He is. All right. Now, one more verse. Go to Romans, or a couple more, more, one more passage, I guess a better way to put it. Romans chapter 4. Look at verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And again they quote Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose 
Who are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised, meaning the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, meaning those who aren't Jews? Well, Paul goes on, says, We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And then he says, It wasn't after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but not have been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, in Genesis 15 is when... Excuse me, Genesis 15 is when Abraham believed God and God gave him righteousness. It wasn't until chapter 17 that God has Abraham get circumcised. So it has nothing to do with whether or not he was circumcised or obedient to any law that God gave. Abraham was given righteousness by his faith. And the Bible then goes on to say that God's plan has always been that he would give righteousness to those who have faith in what he's promised. That's why Old Testament people are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Abraham and others could be given righteousness because God's outside of time. He knew that what Jesus was going to do would make the atonement for their sins, but they only were given righteousness if they put their faith in, listen, God's provision for their sin. And God's provision for their future. That's why in this Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, which we'll get to in time, it lists these men and women of faith. But they were living by faith, and the Scripture says they were looking forward to a world to come. Their faith was in God, that He was their provision, that He was their righteousness, that He was the one who would make them clean. They weren't putting their faith in their obedience to the law. They were putting their faith in God. And that's what He's been looking for all along. But now we are on the wonderful side of the cross where we understand a little bit more the fullness of how it all works. It's easier for us because we understand that Jesus has already died to pay for our sins. They didn't fully grasp how it was all going to be worked out. They just believed God would cover their sins. That God would give them righteousness. They didn't know how. They just knew that these sacrifices were a picture of it in some way. (coughs) Yes, ma'am. You want to say something? Just to look at And then the Bible says in Hebrews that Abraham, when he went to sacrifice Isaac, who was the promised one that God had given him righteousness because he believed he would come, the Bible says in Hebrews that he believed somehow God was going to raise him from the dead. And you have to understand, at that time, we don't have any recording of anybody being risen from the dead at that time. It wasn't like he was bringing Isaac thinking, well, he raised Lazarus, I'm sure he'll bring him back. Or he he brought Eutychus back from the dead when he fell out the window. He didn't have those experiences. He knew who God was. You're right. And so he believed that somehow God was going to do that. Yes, sir. I'm often confused. All right. Uh, Since we're sons of Abraham. Through faith. Through faith. Spiritual sons. What? Spiritual children. We're spiritual sons of Abraham through through, through faith. I just thought it said we were sons. Well, no, this, yeah, this is a, a, 
this has all been done in the spiritual realm, if you will. We don't. I am now not genetically a Jew. Because the Bible actually so says in Galatians. What's the distinction between Israel mm-hmm. and Christians? The distinction between Israel and Christians right now is those who have faith in God through, through Jesus' sacrifice are the church, are Christians. Right now, there is the nation Israel, and they are just genetically Abraham's descendants. But remember what he said here in Romans. The, the righteousness is given not because they're circumcised, but because they have faith. So if they are circumcised, if you will, Jews, but they haven't faith in God, they are genetically his descendants, but in God's eyes, not the ones who are covered in the promise of salvation. Okay, still trouble. I believe there are people who have the Jewish faith who are not literal descendants. Okay. There are those. There are those that are that way as well. They could be baptized into. They. they uh, you could become a Jew. You were. You were sacrificed so and all the that. Distinction isn't that they are genetically. And uh, well, and what I'm saying is, is so, for for salvation, the distinction is spiritually by faith. But once the church age comes to an end, God will pick up His last seven year period for the nation of Israel. Now, there are individual Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they're a part of the church. But just because they're descendants of Abraham, genetically, doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be given righteousness. They too must have receive it by faith. You understand? There are some people that think that just because they're Jews... Yes, I got it. I understand. I, I understand, mm-hmm. but I don't see this distinction clearly being stated about... Those who accept and recover are only spiritually kind of children of Abraham. To me, I thought it said we are. Well, we are and in so, the in the sense of the, a lot of the promises have come to us, but we can't say that we have replaced Israel and that God is not. There are those who believe in what we what Bible, well, not the Bible, what some people call replacement theology. And they think that all the promises for Israel are now being fulfilled in the church and that God is done with the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 are very, very clear that God is not done with Israel. He set them aside for a time and He's working now in all the world, the Gentiles, giving them righteousness that they haven't even sought for. He's giving it to them. He's going to make the Jews jealous. And when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, He'll pick up with the nation of Israel. So there is a distinction. Excuse me. I, I, I have trouble with that one. I understand. Well, but there is a distinction. You have trouble with other things too. That's probably true. But before uh, before Abraham uh, had any children, he wanted to, uh, which was a custom, and he wanted to adopt his servant. Right, Eliezer. Mm-hmm. And, and if those that come to become Jews would be like adopted sons. Of right. Than, well, there are people that that become Jews. They actually get circumcised. Yeah. They're all that kind of a thing. They believe in the God um, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all. But again, what he's talking about here, though, is Jesus' death is for first of all not the angels. You notice he didn't die for the angels. They were created before us. We were created after them. We were created lower than them. He didn't die for the angels, folks. But he decided, died for us. But he says it very interesting. He didn't just say, man, 
He said it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now, this offer, as you know, is open to every man, every man and every woman on the earth. But those who receive it by faith become the descendants of Abraham. Because it's through the promise. And remember, Isaac was the promise. And then all the way through, you can trace from Isaac all the way to Jesus. And he fulfilled all the lineages and everything. And we now know that it is Jesus who is the one God talked about. Now, I want to take you to another step here in, in this study. Keeping in mind who the Hebrew writer is writing to and why. What is he trying to say in verse 18? I want you to look at that and I want you to wrestle with it a little bit. Keeping in mind who the Hebrew writer is writing to and why he's writing to them. What is he trying to say in verse 18? Because Here's what it says. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Exactly. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. Why? Because they were suffering for their faith. And they were thinking, you know, let's just go back. It'll be easier. We won't have to suffer so much persecution. And he's saying, look, he knows what it's like to suffer for righteousness. He knows what it's like to be tempted even to try to walk away from it. I want you to keep in mind, did Jesus struggle with obedience to righteousness? Yes, he did. When? In the garden we see it, don't we? Go there real quick. Go to Matthew 26. Verses 36 through 46. So then Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground, and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus wrestled with what he had to do. He suffered, and he knew that he was about to suffer. But I really want to clarify something. I don't think Jesus was afraid of the mocking. I don't think Jesus was afraid of the spitting. I don't think Jesus was afraid of the whipping or even the crucifixion physically. Because, remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if you're struck on one cheek, what are you to do? Turn the other cheek and let them strike your other. If you're persecuted, that's okay. Keep going. So it would have been kind of hypocritical for Jesus to say, let them hit you, and then say, I don't want to be hit. This wasn't what he was afraid of. What he was afraid of is what he was going to really experience on the cross. As bad as the physical was, 
don't lose sight of the fact that he knew that he was about to have all of sin put on him. And he was going to experience a separation from the Father. Again, I don't know how God can separate himself from God. But Jesus on that cross experienced that. He experienced hell. And that wasn't something he was looking forward to. And he knows what it's like to be tempted to turn back. He knows full well what it's like to be tempted to turn back. And he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so what I want to ask you is then, what kept him going forward? Let's let's not just say he's able to help you and then send you on your way. I want us to think about that. What kind of help could he give? What are some things that, that kept him going forward in his struggle against the temptation to turn and run? His love for us. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are the men and women of faith, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He had one, we see here, he had perseverance. He stuck with it. But why? Because of the joy set before him. The the hope of the future reward. His love for us. The fact that he was what? Bringing many sons to glory. Uh, Listen to me as I read to you from Jude. Verses 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from falling... And to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Do you understand? This joy set before him was not just the fact that he was going to be seated back on the throne of God and be given glory and honor. The joy set before him was you and me. That's why Paul says to the Christians that became believers under his ministry, You are my glory, you are my crown. You're my joy. Jesus had that same mindset. He knew, if I stick with this, I will be able to bring them with me. And they'll get to see me where I am. They'll get to be with me forever. I'll get to be with them. And it'll be done. Defeated. And that's what kept him going. Folks, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your joy and your future reward. Now heaven, you can't lose. If you're a child of God through Jesus, you're already going. But there is a reward. There is a a crowning, if you will. There is a coronation that's going to occur to us where God rewards us and, and praises us for faithfulness and perseverance. Don't throw that away. Don't throw that away. And That's why the Bible also says that he was faithful or he was obedient. In the time that we want, we have left. I want to deal with that because in Hebrews chapter five, verses seven and ten, 
It says something very interesting, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, but I feel like we need to talk about it tonight as we kind of tie this up. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We'll get into this in a lot more when we get to this section. But let's talk about this one aspect of this. How does God learn obedience? What could God learn? How to suffer through with this flesh. He comes to know the pain that comes with obedience sometimes. He also knows the suffering that accompanies obedience. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, you don't have time to turn there, but in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, it talks about how Jesus became obedient to death, even death on the cross. As we see here, it says he was, uh, he was made perfect. Remember, again, it wasn't that he wasn't perfect and now he became perfect. He became the perfect or the complete sacrifice for sin. But Jesus himself struggled with obedience to God. Jesus himself was in the flesh and said, I don't want to. He learned obedience. He learned to do his Father's will. That's why he said, everything I do, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I'm only doing my Father's will. My Father's always at his work to this very day. And I too am working, but I'm only doing what he tells me. Jesus lived in daily obedience to the Father. Was it always easy? No. Was it always fun? No. You had your hand up. Go ahead. It's just a concept I haven't thought about before. But before, before Christ was in human flesh, He, as God, was giving all commands. He wasn't taking commands from anyone. No. So it makes that concept of learning obedience a little easier to understand. When He took on flesh, God also put within him a human will, so that human will had to be submissive to the Father's will, just like our will has to be submissive to the Father's will in order for us to not sin. And the fact that he was without sin means he perfectly lived with having that human will, but submitting it to God's will. And that's why we need to yield to God in our struggle against temptation, because He's the only one that ever won this battle against the flesh. You can't. I can't. We're only from Adam. He was from God and man. You understand? And therefore, He was able to defeat it, and He's the one who can still. But isn't that cool? He actually learned obedience in the flesh... And that's what I want you to understand. Don't miss out on the fullness of what Jesus did when He died for you. We have had such a limited presentation of the Gospel. He died for my sins. Folks, you miss it if that's all you think He did. He was the perfect and only sacrifice. Oh, and by the way, He's the faithful high priest now. He understands. He's merciful. He he was obedient. He knows how hard obedience is. He also knows we don't have the benefit that He had in being God, but now He also knows that we do. 
If we'll let Him have control by faith, believing that He will give us the victory. Too many of us are still trying to, after having begun in the Spirit, God, I can't save myself, would you please do it? And we do that by faith. After having begun in the Spirit, we're trying to perfect ourselves in the flesh. I need to do better. I need to try harder. No, acknowledge you can't, but believe that He will. God, I don't want to forgive this person, but you said that I should. And I want to only if you give me the want to. Because right now I don't have the want to. But you will give me the want to. And I'm going to be obedient to you. And I'm going to go and forgive this person. But thank God you're going to be the one that's actually doing it. Because I can't. But I believe you will through me. And you walk in obedience to forgive that person. Believing that God will. And I promise you, as you do, by the time you get there, you actually feel like you want to. And it ain't from you. Chris, go ahead. match and the spirit is very willing but my flesh is weak that's talking about the suffering servant. And look at how this prophecy described Jesus years and years before. Verses 4 through 7 is Isaiah 50. It says, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The Sovereign Lord has opened my ears, and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. You see it? Jesus understands the suffering of obedience at times. And you've got to keep in mind, all the way through this whole book of Hebrews, all the way through this whole book, you're going to see the Hebrew writer keep coming back to 
look, I know you're thinking about going back to Judaism. I know that's a temptation strong. Please, because he doesn't know his audience. He doesn't know who truly has the salvation and has the sealing of the Spirit and who doesn't. That's why he gives those stern warnings. Watch out. If you, you, know, you, you might miss out on this grace that we have and all that. But he's also at the same time saying, Jesus knows. Why are you running from the only one who could help you? Why are you running from the only one that could understand? Have you ever thought about the fact that when we come into suffering in our life, our first instinct is to pull away? Our first instinct is to stop going to church. Our first instinct is to hide. It's to go exact opposite direction of what we want. You ever notice when your kids hurt themselves or whatever, sometimes they would say, No, don't touch it. But you knew that you could help. But they didn't want you to. By the way, when Adam and Eve fell into sin through their disobedience and eating that fruit, who was the only person that could help them now? And who did they hide from? It's interesting also, if you you want to write this and look at it later, it's Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. Paul has just been saved. And Jesus has revealed Himself to him on the road to Damascus. He's blind now. and He's told to wait. He'll be told what he must do. And then God comes to Ananias and he says, I want you to go and lay your hands on this guy and restore him of his sight. And God tells him who he is. Ananias says, don't you know who that is? I think that's so awesome. (laughs) Here's a man who can hear God specifically say what street to go to and what the man's name is and what to specifically do. And he still says, God, do you know who that is? I love that. And, And God understands our frame. But then he says, this is what God says to him in verses 15 and 16. He says, he is my chosen instrument to go to the Gentiles. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God has not promised that everything's going to be smooth down here. And actually, it's in the suffering that you actually learn the fellowship with who Jesus really is. It's in those times that He becomes even more real, if you will, in our understanding of who He is. I'm saying don't don't run from the suffering. When the obedience is tough, don't run. I know it's tempting. But I'm going to tell you to do something interesting. I'm going to tell you to embrace the suffering. And don't make your first prayer, how, how soon till we get out of this? Well, make your first prayer. God, if this is from you, and it must be because I'm your child, and everything that comes to me now is through your hand of love. I want every bit that you have for me through this. I want every bit that you have for me through this, even if it means death. Are you willing to really get to that level of an understanding of your relationship with God? Are you really willing to get to that level of faith and love. Folks, it's time. Remember I told you at the beginning of this study, part of the reason why I, got, I believe God led me to teach the book of Hebrews is, I believe some days of struggling are coming. I don't know when, I don't know how soon. But if Jesus tarries, I believe they're coming. And I want you at this point to be ready to begin to take to heart what the Hebrew writer was saying, that you have to understand that Jesus knows, and He's the only one that can help you, and He's the only one that will give you the power and the grace. Don't be tempted to run from it. Don't be tempted to chicken out. Embrace it. And say, Lord, because I know that this isn't because of anything I've done, you're not punishing me, you're not mad at me, you're not out to get me, because I'm your child, you're doing this for my best. I want it all.
I want it all. Isn't that what Jesus ended up saying on the, in the garden? If there's any other way, I'm for it. But not my will, but yours. And then he went and drank the cup every drop. Every drop. Father, the more we look at the depth of this book, the more we understand that you've done so much more than just die for our sins. You've begun to show us that you became the perfect sacrifice. The only, we knew that you were the only, but now we understand there's more to it than that. You understand. You know. You've been tempted in every way in which we are. Yeah, you had victory. Thank you for that, first of all, because it wasn't easy. It's hard for us, and we feel pretty good when we go a week without sinning. Maybe a day. I was just shooting high. You did 33 years in this flesh. You grew up with brothers who didn't believe that you were who you were. You grew up with family members who thought you were crazy at a time. You had best friends turn their back and turn you in. Father, we could just list all the many temptations you must have had and opportunities to sin. I'm sure there were many women who found you incredibly attractive and enticing. But you stayed pure. Oh, Father, there's, we, we don't even understand at all all that you went through for us. Not just in the death on the cross, but in the life of sinlessness. You did it because you love us. And now you've moved us into a relationship with you, which by your grace and by your edict, we are holy, we are pure, we are yours. And you're in the process of conforming us into the, your image. And even though we may not look like it many times, we are, in your eyes, the finished product because you see how it's all going to work out. Lord, we don't. But we can hang on to the truth that you said you'd finish what you started. And Lord, in this room right now, we don't know who all is dealing with what because unfortunately we have a tendency to try to hide our struggles. I pray that those fears will go away. But Lord, at the same time, we also don't know what's down the road for any of us either. And Father... You know that they'll be tempting to say, I don't want this. But may we also at the same time be willing to say, if this is your plan for my life, and you're doing something for your glory and for my best, may we be willing to drink whatever it is you've got for us to the full and receive all of the blessings and benefits that you have for us. And Lord, I know some of us in this room tonight are probably saying, don't pray that. Because it scares us, but if it scares us, it's because we don't know your heart yet. We know your power, but we don't know your heart. Lord, I know I too have have struggled with this type of a prayer in my life because I, I want you to have control of the things I want you to have control of. I don't want you to have control of the things I don't want you to have control of. But Father, tonight, we come to our perfect High priest, who understands. Thank you that we don't have to pray the perfect prayer. Thank you that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf when we don't even know how to pray. Thank you that you're going to cause all things, even the stuff we don't like, to work for our good. Because we love you and where you're called according to your purpose. 
Father, You know our first prayer is that if You decide to come get us tonight, we're good, we're packed, we're ready. But if You choose not to, there's many reasons. May we embrace whatever it looks like between now and then. And may You shine Your glory, not just on this earth, but in front of all the angels and the demons that are watching right now. We believe that You are God, and we trust You. In Your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.